Good morning. What a way to begin today, to prepare our hearts to receive the word. The lyrics that we just sung are spot on for Ephesians chapter 4. This letter written about 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul to the believers who lived and gathered in the ancient city of Ephesus. It was a people and a place Paul knew very well. He lived there for two years. In some ways, it wasn't that different from Chicago. All the trains come through Chicago. The ancient trade routes went through Ephesus. It was diverse in every category, ethnic, linguistic, cultural. And yes, it was diverse in the way that we use that term today to describe a culture of sexuality. But all of this was driven by the main draw for the city of Ephesus, which was the temple to Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a place filled with idols and associated with the practice of magic. So despite its great affluence, despite the majestic awe that people had when they saw the city, it was a place of great darkness. Arguably, it was as hard for a Christian to live a life pleasing to the Lord in Ephesus as it is today in 21st century America. There were many differences, but I'm amazed at how many similarities there are between then and now. Just these past few months, I was thinking about how the Olympic Games were also held back then. 2,000 years ago, the Olympic Games brought athletes from nations all over the world, some of which considered each other enemies, some of whom were even at war with each other. The same thing happened in Tokyo this past month. Today, the Olympic Games function like an international proxy diplomacy to showcase for the world ideas like peace and unity, an end to conflict, the dream of a world where everything is done with fairness and justice, where everyone is shown respect and dignity. My wife and I watched the opening ceremony together, and both of us were struck by the unmistakable spirituality of the whole thing. It was like a worldwide televised secular church service complete with singing and a sermon. And if you listened closely between the lines, you could hear the following three points being preached. One, what is wrong with the world? Two, how do we fix it? Three, what would the world look like if we did? And as the ceremony progressed, several different singers from different countries came together and began to sing a song, trading a melody, a familiar one, back and forth, pouring out their hearts with these deeply emotional words. What's wrong with the world? Listen to what they sang. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for. And no religion, too. How do we what's wrong with the world? Listen to these lyrics. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. Hell below us, above us only sky. And what would the world look like if we did this? Imagine all the people living life in peace. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. And then these words written by John Lennon and Yoko Ono with Viewers all over the world hearing this echoing in their minds watched as hundreds of athletes from every nation, tribe, and tongue paraded together in to take their, their place in the assembly. And they gathered in unity and peace as one body, and they literally lit a flame 
to symbolically give light to the world. This was designed to be a worshipful experience, but not one that acknowledged or glorified the Creator. It explicitly denied His existence while humanity worshipped itself. It was a forgery of the kingdom of God, a vision to entice the world with the benefits of the kingdom, but without the king. Contrast that with what the famous Christian thinker G.K. Chesterton wrote in the early 1900s when the London Times asked a number of writers for essays. Topic, what is wrong with the world? Chesterton famously responded with a biblically accurate two-word essay. What's wrong with the world? He wrote just this. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. In other words, if you want to know what's really wrong with the world, just look at the eyes of the person staring back at you in the mirror. Because what lurks in the heart of every human being on the planet also lurks, lurks in my heart and in yours. That's what's wrong with the world. And this is key to understanding what the Apostle Paul to Ephesus, the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 18 through 24. Would you turn there now in your Bibles with me? We'll read this in just a moment. So far now in Ephesians, Paul has powerfully described what Christ has done and the new identity we who have believed in Christ now have in him of the new humanity that God has created in Christ. And it's not until the second half of Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul starts talking about what our response therefore should be. I'll be reading this out of the ESV this morning, starting in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This passage splits cleanly in half. It's the way of the world and the way of Christ. But before we get too far, let's be sure not to skip over the first few words. I like the way the NIV captures the force of this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. So what follows is not a suggestion for the church to take under advisement. Paul says, I insist, and not just that, I insist on it in the Lord. He's reminding them that what follows comes with the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, as indeed all of God's word does. And then Paul says, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do. 
Now, the Holy Spirit had already made it very clear to the church that non-Jews did not have to become culturally Jewish in order to receive Christ. And now the church was full of Gentile believers. So the term Gentile at this time is sort of like a verbal shorthand to talk about people who are not yet God's people. And that's the meaning here. Paul is talking about non-believers everywhere, in essence, the world. And how does the world live? Here's the umbrella statement. They live in the futility of their minds. So before Paul says anything about the way the world lives, he points out the way the world thinks, which is futile, pointless, unable to deliver. Now, I want to be sure here to pause and acknowledge that there are many brilliant people who know the Bible better than the average Christian and who may even be able to articulate the content of the gospel accurately, but themselves, they do not follow Jesus. And of course, there are many brilliant Christian believers as well. Christianity is a reasonable faith, but its reasonableness alone does not bring people to faith. The futility of the world's thinking has nothing to do with IQ. To the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, Brothers and sisters, consider your calling Not many were wise from a human perspective. So if it's not about how smart you are, what does Paul mean that the world's thinking is futile? Our first point today parts. We'll take them one at a time. The first is, what's wrong with the world darkens humanity's understanding. Do you remember what it felt like to be a child and to wake up in the middle of the night And you opened your eyes expecting to see things that were there, but you couldn't. And instead, seeing things that were in fact not there at all. And all it took to clear up your perception was the flick of a light switch. And then you could see what was real and true. Church, the spiritual light switch, the Spirit of God, and the light is the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot see without the illumination of the Spirit. Speaking again to the church in Corinth, Paul also wrote, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. As human beings, we're born into a spiritual darkness. We see without seeing. We perceive without comprehending. But secondly, and more consequentially, What's wrong with the world also excludes humanity from the life of God. I've never actually sat down and watched a zombie movie. But I do get the basic concept. It's hard to live in our culture and not be at least somewhat aware. The classic zombie storyline is built around a discovery that the living dead are walking among us and taking over, infecting those who are alive so they too join the living dead and become zombies too, a horrifying, apocalyptic nightmare. Don't know why this is popular. But from a worldview based on the Bible, I find this genre a little, a little ironic. Because according to Ephesians, we don't need to be afraid of zombies taking over. Because they already have. It's the world we were born into. Ephesians 2, you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. The story of the Bible is like a zombie movie in reverse. It's not a horror story of alive people becoming the living dead, but a story of redemption where the living dead become alive. God himself puts on human flesh and enters into our horror story. His blood is poured out to atone for our sin, and now his resurrection life flows into all who believe and makes us alive together with Christ. So by default, to be without Christ makes us excluded or alienated from the life of God. That's the condition into which we are born. So every person who comes to faith in Jesus is a living, breathing, eternal miracle of life. They've become a new person, part of a new humanity. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But today, if you're on the outside looking in, you might be troubled by what you're hearing. But that could be good news. That could be the first rays of light are penetrating and your understanding is becoming undarkened. And if that's true, may today be the day you respond in faith. And yes, there is a human response to this work of God. There is a reason some people, though they hear and see glimmers of light, yet remain in darkness. Let's look now at the second half of verse 18. It's because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So we're talking about mind and heart. These two things either go together or they don't go anywhere at all. You cannot believe in your heart what you do not understand in your mind. You cannot have a Christian faith without the content of the gospel. But the inverse is true as well. There's a kind of spiritual understanding that cannot be apprehended by any other means except through the lens of faith, which is why Paul says the persistent ignorance of this world is due to their hardness of heart. So what you really think and what you really believe in the end determines how you live, how you walk through life. And what does the walk of someone excluded from the life of God look like? Verse 19, over time it makes you callous. Things that should cause pain, which should afflict the conscience, cease to bring discomfort. Like a callus worn into the palm of your hand, the heart can also build up a tolerance until it no longer feels guilt or shame. And once that happens, what is there to hold you back? And Paul is definitely starting to shine a spotlight on sexual sin here, and he'll develop that a little bit more in verses to come, but it's not limited to just that. It says every kind of impurity. So this is the wide spectrum and what happens over time with sexual sin, with lies, with deceit, theft, gossip, anger, selfishness, pride, and so on. The heart can grow calloused 
in any and all of these areas. But what's most critical to see here is that it's the desire for this that grows more and more. It gets worse and worse. This is the second point today. Sin's destructiveness accelerates over time. It's like someone who experiences or experiments with a mild drug and gets a temporary high. Generally, a drug addict starts by self-medicating for deep personal pain. It's an attempt to fix the problem, but it only makes things worse. And they want to do the same, they want to get the same high over and over again, but it stops working like it used to, so they need a larger dose. And then that loses its power. And so now they're ready to try something harder and more potent. It's a downward spiral over which they have no power. Church, everyone on this planet knows something is wrong with this world. And in their own way, they're trying to fix it. Some may even be convinced that whatever's wrong is wrong inside themselves as well. But our best efforts to fix ourselves and to fix this world will not, cannot work. Because the solution is not in us. And it can't be found in what we can do. Outside of Christ, you cannot hold sin under your control. Sin holds you under its control, regardless of what you tell yourself. No matter how you justify it or try to find a way to redefine it and cast it as being a good thing, it's not. Sin is never static. It doesn't rest. It doesn't stand still. And it's always destructive. But the world cannot see this. Because hearts are hard, therefore ignorance persists, which darkens understanding and excludes, alienates people from the life of God. But, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In Christ, you are no longer excluded from the life of God. Of God. Isn't that good news? Therefore, Paul says to the Christian, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now in verse 20, that is not the way you learned Christ. Isn't that a curious phrase? Learned Christ. It's a literal translation from the Greek. Most English translations use a gloss like the way of life you learned, or how you came to know Christ. And translating any language, especially one from 2,000 years ago, it's necessary to bring unfamiliar words and phrases into the here and now using commonly... That's how we can understand what the text means. But in this case, I think keeping the unfamiliar phrase, learning Christ, is worth it. Because as biblical scholars point out, it was unfamiliar back then too. In fact, there is no precedent for this phrase, learning a person. There's no precedent for it in the entire Bible or in any of the ancient Greek literature, which means the believers in Ephesus hearing this would likely have also paused and said, hmm, isn't that a curious phrase? Paul wants them to contemplate it and to think about it. What, we mean, what he means us to understand is that humanity and what humanity needs is not going to be found in a philosophy, or in a teaching. 
It's not even found, strictly speaking, in the moral teachings of Jesus, which is often how the world perceives Christianity. The solution is found in Jesus Christ himself. The solution is his person, because who Jesus is makes sense of everything he says and does, and of what the entirety of the Bible teaches. To put it bluntly, if you get Jesus wrong, you get the whole Bible wrong. And in describing what it means to follow Jesus, Paul coins his own phrase, which is our third point, discipleship is about learning a person. Christian discipleship is about learning Christ. In the ancient world, the deepest commitment level of learning was for a student to become a disciple of a teacher. This was true for Plato, for Socrates before him. It's true in the New Testament of John the Baptist. They didn't just have students, they had disciples. In Luke 6.40, Jesus talks about what everyone already had a category for. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So the goal of being a disciple is to learn to think like the one you follow and also to speak and act. Not only to do what they do, but the way they do it. And the only way to learn like that is to live alongside your teacher every day. That's the only way to learn the person. That's the picture of discipleship. Even more so, therefore, with Jesus. Being a disciple of Christ, that is, to be a Christian, is not just a part of who you are or what you do. You cannot call Christ Lord unless everything you are and everything you have falls under his lordship. Colin Marshall and Tony Payne put it like this, Jesus repeatedly tells people that following him is an exclusive life and death commitment. To go with him means to leave everything else behind, including your very life. He puts it so starkly in Luke's gospel. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple, learner. To learn Christ, to learn Jesus, is to submit yourself to his teaching, to walk in his ways, will mean leaving behind all your current loyalties and commitments as Jesus makes very clear, saving our old life is not an option. It's only by losing our lives that we save them. This is not an exaggeration of what the Bible teaches. This is from Jesus about what it means to follow Jesus. Discipleship is costly. It's all in or not in. And Paul reinforces this rhetorically with what he says next. He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus. He's not questioning whether the Ephesian believers are actually followers of Christ. They are. He's affirming that they are. But he's reminding them of the basics of the basics. The truth is in Jesus. Discipleship is learning Jesus. This unfamiliar phrase is vital. And now to explain it a little more, Paul shifts over to something more familiar. 
and uses an analogy that was common both in the Old Testament and the ancient Roman world, which is taking off and putting on clothing to broadcast to the world who you are. It's something people still do today. When you're in a hospital and you see someone in a white coat, what do you know instantly? Only the doctors get to wear those. And when a person, a prisoner, gets out of jail, they take off the orange jumpsuit and put on the clothes of a free person. Or when you join the military, the first thing you do is take off your civilian clothes and put on the uniform of a soldier. What you wear tends to say something about who you are, but this is a metaphor. Paul's not introducing here a Christian dress code. He's talking about what the world sees when they look at your life. And there's something subtle here, really easy to miss. Paul writes about what it means to have learned Christ, and there are three phrases here. First, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Second, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the, the, the new self. To put on is number three. On the surface, these seem essentially parallel. To put off, to be renewed, to put on. But the tense actually changes here. One of these is not like the others. In Greek, the first and third are written in a way that signifies something in the past now fully complete. You who are a Christian, you've already put on or put off the old self. That happened at conversion. As a Christian, you have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. And so you've already put on the new self. That's what we see symbolized in baptism. You've been buried with Christ and raised with him to new life. Galatians 3.27, For those of you who were baptized into Christ have been clothed with Christ. So this happened at conversion. But there is something in the present, something ongoing. That's the second phrase, the middle one, to be renewed. This is in a different tense. Rather than past and complete, this one is present and continuous. It's an ongoing process. And it's not a process you do. You don't renew yourself. It is God acting to renew you day by day. The fourth point, learning Christ is an ongoing renewal of your mind. Do you sense the tension in all of this? You've already put off the old self, but you need to be continually renewed in the present in conformity to the new self that you've already put on at your conversion. This is the tension we find all over the New Testament. Theologians describe it as already but not yet. This is something we feel so deeply, don't we? It's like a tug of war in our souls. It's the battle to become who you already are in Christ. But unlike the unbelieving world, which walks how? In the futility of their minds, the Christian walks with Jesus in the ongoing renewal of their minds. Do you see the contrast? The futility of their minds, the renewal of your minds. In Christ, also, there is an acceleration, but this is a growing hunger for purity, a desire to be more and more like Christ. It's something you grow to want. This is our final point. 
Learning Christ will increasingly transform you to be more, become more like Christ. So look at the end of verse 24, where Paul describes what the new self looks like. He says, it is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Righteousness. Discerning correctly between right and wrong and choosing the right. That's what it means to be righteous. Holiness set apart for God's special purpose and therefore pure and unmarred by sin. That's what it means to be holy. And the way Paul phrases this might be reminding you of the first chapter of Genesis, which would be on purpose. Genesis 1.27, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Humanity was not created sinful. Humanity was created in the image and likeness of God. Sin didn't come into the picture until later. That's Genesis 3. Therefore, sin is not an essential part of what it means to be human. When sin entered the world, it intertwined itself so much into the soul of humanity that no one is born righteous or holy. The great Dutch theologian Herman Bavink wrote about how hard it can be as a Christian, to grapple with this and to believe that Jesus could truly free you fully from the power of sin. He writes, A head and a heart, a mind and a will, all of them altogether pure and without sin, that is something which lies far beyond the pale of all of our experiences. When we stop to reflect how sin has insinuated itself into all our thinking and speaking, into all of our choices and actions, then even the doubt can arise in our hearts whether such a state of truth, love, and peace is possible for man. Holy Scripture, however, wins the victory and conquers every doubt. The Scriptures maintain that sin does not belong to the essence of human nature and that it can therefore be removed and separated from that human nature. But that's not something we can do. It would take an act of God. And friends, that is exactly what happened. Through his sinless life and death and resurrection, Jesus has done this. He has separated sin from human nature and has created a new humanity. But at this point in our timeline, as believers in Jesus still living in the flesh, we're a people caught in between. A Christian is a new person in an old body. Paul often refers to that as the flesh. And we still experience powerful temptations. We still sin. And for many of us here today, that's a battle that is raging. Perhaps you heard the description of the person grown callous to sin and in a downward spiral getting worse and worse. And maybe there's a piece of you that's thinking, God's word's describing me. Is there a destructive behavior you feel powerless to resist or stop? Does it seem hard to imagine how you could ever not struggle or ever be in danger of falling into sin again? Do not despair. Do not doubt. That's a future that is yours in Christ. And today, God is throwing you out a lifeline so you can grab hold of it. And that lifeline is not a teaching or a technique or a plan, or a program. It's a person. The truth is in Jesus. 
Christian and non-Christian, the way of repentance lies before you. Daily repentance is as much a part of the Christian life as it is as daily renewal is a part of the Christian life. They go together. So brothers and sisters, let's take this call to discipleship, this call to learn Christ. Let's take this seriously today. Let's hear it afresh, a call to discipleship this year in the fall of 2021. And today, if you do not yet follow Jesus, would you consider the offer he is making to you? There are two paths before you. One is wide and broad. It leads to destruction, and many are on it. It's the way of the world. The other path is narrow. There are few who take it, but it leads to life, and that narrow path is the way of Jesus. Not simply his teachings, but his person. And as he called out long ago to those who saw him walking by, he calls to you with no less urgency, come and follow me. And God's word makes this promise that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And that is the true and certain hope every Christian clings to from first to last. What's wrong with the world? I am. And you are. How do we fix what's wrong with you and me? We can't. But Jesus can and has and is for all who believe. And therefore, what will the world look like one day? It'll be a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation with a new humanity created after the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness forever. Don't you long for that? It's the future our hearts are longing for and we can only find in Christ. Let's pray together now. Oh, Lord Jesus, we stand in awe of you. We have heard today that our hearts are hard but that you can soften them. Our understanding is darkened, but your Spirit shines the light of Christ into our minds and hearts. You, Lord Jesus, are the light of the world, so we look to you, our source of life. Would you give us a growing hunger for your righteousness and holiness? Would you show us what the next step toward Christ looks like today? And would you fill us, would you fill our hearts with a joyful and faith-filled response? We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.